analytics. Some people love them. Some try to ignore them. One thing's for certain, PTI's Michael Wilbon hates them. But why? What did they do to him? Webster defines them as a method of logical analysis. Sounds like it makes sense. A more in-depth definition said analytics are the process of discovering, interpreting, and communicating significant patterns in data. Quite simply, analytics helps us see insights that we might not otherwise detect. Now that sounds more like it. Today, we're going to dive deep into what analytics are made of, where they came from, how they're being used, and where they're going. Welcome to the Synergy Sports Podcast. I'm your host, Milton Lee, basketball pontificator extraordinaire. On this podcast, I'll be talking sports technology with some of the key decision makers at all levels of sport and finding out how technology is impacting the way games are being played and business is getting done. Today's guests are two of the OGs of the basketball analytics movement, Dean Oliver of the Washington Wizards and Kevin Pelton of ESPN and the Pelton cast. Dean, the godfather of basketball analytics, the human calculator, was a former D3 player and coach at Caltech. He then went on to get a PhD from Chapel Hill in statistical applications and environmental science. Dean authored Basketball on Paper 20 years ago, a seminal piece in the evolution of sports analytics and the first book that I read as I embarked on my journey from finance to front office. He famously created the four factors, which were key to winning games. One, shooting. Two, turnovers. Three, rebounding. And four, free throws. Prior to the Wizards, he was in front office with the Kings, the Sonics, and Nuggets, as well as a time at ESPN working on football analytics. Kevin has been an NBA writer for ESPN since 2013, where he's famous for his stats-based win projections and regular appearances on the Low Post podcast. He was an author of Basketball Prospectus, the Bible on scouting players, and authored the Pro Basketball Prospectus annuals each year. He, too, worked for an NBA team as a consultant with the Indiana Pacers prior to his time at ESPN. Dean, Kevin, long time. How are we doing today? Doing great. Thanks for having us. Yeah, doing great. Good to see you guys. Dean, looks like you're in the Wizards practice facility. Is that your office overlooking the courts? Uh, that is the case. That's where I am today. Awesome. Living and breathing it. We're jealous. So and, uh, uh, There may be some background noise, oh, <laughs> just yeah. so you know. Yeah. Let's, uh, let's zoom in and get some stuff out, out on Twitter. Um, all right. So, Kevin, let's hear a little bit about your journey. How, how did you end up getting to where you are today? Well, this is a good podcast for it because Dean factors heavily into that story. When you know, I started getting interested in this when I was at the University of Washington and started reading first Rob Nyer when he was at ESPN doing baseball coverage there and then baseball prospectus and started asking hey, what's out there about basketball in this vein since basketball was kind of my first love from a sports standpoint? And 
that was Dean at that point. You know, John Hollinger came on the scene in 2001. Uh, you know, I, I, I think I was a little late for his original incarnation of Alleyoop.com. But, you know, Dean was so much of the seminal work at that point. And uh, we connected through a Yahoo discussion group called APBR Analysis, an offshoot of the uh, Association for Pro Basketball Research discussion group on Yahoo. And uh, a, a key link between us was uh, he and a guy named John Maxwell, who works in the WNBA doing PR uh, now with the champion Las Vegas Aces, uh, put together a project in the summer of 2002 where they had somebody at every WNBA game charting Dean's defensive stats and needed a volunteer in every city. So here in Seattle, I you know, raised my hand and, and volunteered to chart those stats for the storm. And that was, you know, a connection between Dean and I that really kind of got me into the field a little bit. And then we all also overlapped at the Sonics. I wasn't doing anything in the analytics vein there. I was just writing for the team website in a more traditional sense. But, uh, you know, really useful to have that connection and that mentorship from Dean as I was starting out. That's awesome. You know, uh, in some ways, all roads lead back to Dean. <laughs> I can remember walking into the Moody Bible Institute in Chicago at pre-draft. And it was my first time there. I just left finance. I'm trying to break into uh, basketball. And Rick Welts, um, who was with the Phoenix Suns at the time, said, you know, your angle is probably analytics. You know, you don't have a competitive advantage from basketball. And I was trying to go with that for a little while. And I look around the gym, there are hundreds of scouts and NBA personnel, and there was one person with a laptop out. And I was like, I got to meet that dude. And that dude happened to be Dean Oliver, the godfather. Dean, give us a little bit of a background. I, I found plenty on Wikipedia, but for those that aren't in front of the internet, tell us how we got here. Well, one thing that's, that's funny too about knowing you guys, both of you guys a long time, is First of all, Kevin looked like he was about 12 when I first met him, and then <laughs> Milt had a mustache. And so he ever, we've uh, grown a lot in these, this time, I can tell you that. So now uh, getting back to the subject at hand, yeah, with regard to analytics, obviously Bill James is to thank uh, for a lot of what we do. Bill James wrote so much about baseball, made us think about sports as an analytical exercise. How do we win games? What are the things that they talk about on TV that make sense or are just blatantly wrong? And I, like Kevin said, I love basketball. Uh, it, it was, I don't know if it was my first love. I think football, what my parents will tell you, was my first love. But I, I uh, played a lot of basketball, spent a lot of time playing. Uh, I definitely had a coaching role in college, even when I was still an undergrad. So I thought about it a lot. And the opportunity to bring what Bill James did over to basketball uh, was always there. It was just a matter of how do you do it and how do you do it the right way? So um, I got an opportunity when I was in college, I was thinking about basketball uh, and engineering and stats and math uh, all the time. So they were intertwined in my head to the point that uh, when I finished finals one year, finished exams, final exams, I watched the NBA finals, and I started applying a lot of my logical uh, intuition to the game of basketball just by writing down what I saw. And over the course of 20 years, uh, I really fleshed that out into something that was kind of logical and sensible, and hopefully up to the par of what Bill James did in baseball. Yeah. You know, um, 
when I think of people that are trailblazers, truly trailblazers and, uh, you know, creating new space um, in what already existed, uh, there has to be a certain amount of arrogance, um, a lot of curiosity, um, a little bit of crazy, uh, but but with that combination and, and a lot of passion, right? Um, and you guys both have passion for basketball. Um, but Dean, back then, there was only a box score. What made you think that we were going to be able to capture enough data? Um, you know, were you thinking that the future would only be the box score? Or did you think it would be some sort of version of what we have today with the mounds and mounds of data coming at us almost overkill in some cases? That's a great question. I, um, one of the things that I've always been pretty good at is figuring out how to maximize the information that comes out of the same set of data. And so, yes, the box score was really what we had. How do we get more information out of that than other people had been extracting? And in the process of doing that, in the process of kind of figuring out what's missing, you figure out what the most important set of data is to track again. And as, as Kevin talked about, we had a defensive scoring project. So those are things that we should measure. Are those the best things to measure given our perspective now? Probably not. But at the time, I felt like, yes, there were more pieces of data that we could grab, but let's maximize the information that we can get out of the existing data that we have. Uh, the details, of course, they play out differently than you ever imagined. But um, I feel like it's going and will continue to go for many years, uh, getting different information, uh, getting different data, let's just say, and extracting more information from that, the new data as well as the old data. So, Kevin, I, I think you graduated college roughly 10 years after Dean and I. Um, and I think at that time was it was still only box score, right? But did you imagine this world of all this new data and new ways of capturing data? Or did you think like, okay, I'm really interested in what we have here and I can create something and ways of looking and valuing players um, from what we have and that's enough? So I think capturing no, kind of the mechanism for how it was going to happen was hard to imagine back then. But, you know, there were a couple of pieces uh, during college, I wrote for a site called uh, hoopsworld.com that uh, later became basketballinsiders.com. And I wrote a series on kind of what's the future of stats and talked about there were two schools as I saw it. And that was, we did have play-by-play -play by that point, was not readily available, but it was available. So you had the first incarnations of adjusted plus minus systems had come up at that point. And then there was also this theory that you know, Dean sort of alluded to that was kind of like the project score sheet that Bill James did in baseball. Like, well, what if we track all this stuff that isn't being captured right now and isn't in the box score and it gives us this much richer data? So that idea was out there. It was just that we imagined it was going to be an army of volunteers recording this on their own, like I was at, at those WNBA games, as opposed to a camera is going to be able to give it to us 20 times per second where everybody is on the court and we can derive a bunch of things from that. And I think it was already kind of clear to me, you know, the idea even back then, because in, in 2004, Dan Rosenbaum had uh, introduced his version of APM and then also a statistical plus minus to help that was kind of guided by that version of APM, which is basically what now kind of the 
the the best suite of all-in-one metrics had become the synthesis of the box score stats with the play-by-play data adjusted for uh, uh, you know who's on and off the court. And APM being adjusted plus minus. Yep. Yeah. All right. Let's talk a little bit about how you as individuals and the roles you're currently in look at analytics differently. What are the tools you pull out of the toolbox? What are you trying to discover? Um, you know, Kevin, as a, as a media person, in my eyes, you're kind of akin also to a front office and a scout as, as how they would look at individual players, teams, um, you know, and Dean, while you've had a long history of looking at the scouting, um, it looks, I, I'm guessing, and I might be putting words into your mouth, where it's more strategic. Um, but I'm going to open the table and maybe, Kevin, let's start with you of um, what are you trying to discover when you're using analytics? Yeah, I always think of, and I think it's something Gene has said in the past too, the Bill James line about, I was always in the center of the argument. Like I'm trying to answer the same sort of questions that all of my other peers and colleagues at ESPN and around the media field are trying to answer, just maybe in a slightly different way, a little bit less of going to players and coaches and asking for their opinion, although that's certainly part of what I do, and a little more of using numbers to inform that in conjunction with watching a lot of basketball. And, you know, the the interesting part of doing that in the media is I, I have, I'm interested in all 30 teams and everybody in the league and trying to understand those stories for, you know, when I'm discussing them in an article or asked about them in a podcast. And, you know, certainly numbers are a, a helpful way of doing that. Uh, one of Dean's great lines is, you know, the eyes see a game better than the numbers, but the numbers see all of the games. And as much basketball as I watch, it can't certainly be every game. So to keep an eye on that, you know, San Antonio team, I haven't watched in a couple of days, I'm able to pull up their, you know, stats and, and kind of some key indicators that I know might help explain, hey, why are, have the Spurs started so well relative to what we expected from them? So that's sort of how I think about it philosophically. Yeah, I, you stole a line I was going to use later. <laughs> Dean also told me that, uh, you know, the data captures every game and we can't be at every game, unfortunately. Uh, Dean, how about you? What what are you looking at? What are you trying to accomplish um, for your coaching staff and organization in your current role? The job always is to tell stories, right? And there's different audiences that want different stories maybe of the same game. Uh, and I think uh, having worked at ESPN as well, uh, I was there, overlapped with, uh, with Kevin a little bit. Uh, the stories that they try to tell are a little bit different than you try to tell within a front office or within coaching. And I would say within coaching, a lot of times – you are looking at the players, the opposing players, but a lot of it is how do we make our players better? How do we make those other players worse? Um, is kind of the fundamental thing that you're trying to do. And that comes down to what kind of tactical thing approaches you can take. Um, understanding whether guys go left, go right. What do they do when they're, they're shooting? All of these kind of things. And that may be more in the weeds than Kevin or ESPN really wants to get into. But it is relevant for the audience that I have. Uh, it's relevant for a lot of the players uh, as well. So those are we. You end up looking at a little bit different data. Uh, I think on the coaching side, I, I look at the same stuff I used to look at 
on the management side, plus a whole lot more. Yeah, it, it seems like, Dean, I, I think you might have been the first um, native analytics person on a bench. I have heard a couple of other organizations that have added that role. Um, wh where are we? I, I introduced you guys as an as OGs in the analytics movement. Is it still a movement? Do we need to fight for credibility um, at the highest levels of the NBA? I mean, I, I think the media and the fans want as much as they can um, digest, but I'd love to hear your guys' perspective of where we are and how ubiquitous um, it, it still needs to become. I think until you, uh Stop calling it the analytics movement. I think it is it is separate. Uh, there is uh, fundamentally there is there are things in the game of basketball that are difficult to measure, and until you can measure all of those things, uh, there's always going to be some missing, and there's going to be some element of, of guts and eyes and and kind of interpretability from a soft sense that's always going to be out there. And I think as a result, there is going to be some challenge in convincing people that it helps you. So I think it's that divide is going to be around for a while longer, but it's gotten less and less over time and it will continue to get less and less. It, it's crazy that, you know, I think it was Daryl, it might've been somebody else, but they said like, okay, well you can fight analytics. It's kind of like fighting gravity, but um, you know, do what you want. It, it, it's true. It's unbelievable that people really, you know, Dean, you are trying to help um, and add another perspective. Uh, Kevin, what do you think? Are we are we still a movement? Do you need credibility from a media perspective? And what do you think teams um, feel about analytics? Well, there's a lot of people on Twitter who would tell you I don't have credibility. So uh, <laughs> maybe I don't. But uh, I, I mean, I think the, you know, sort of the, the nature of the question has changed. The idea of this seat at the table, I don't think is really the fight necessarily anymore you know particularly not and this is probably an interesting thing to get into as we go on this podcast particularly not on the front office side the coaching side as you sort of alluded to has been a little later because i think the original perspective was that you know statistical analysis has more to offer front offices than it does coaching staffs necessarily was kind of the perspective in the nba and that's shifted a little bit over time especially as we've gotten richer data uh from the the tracking uh, camera tracking, but uh, you know, I I don't think you know the 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 validity of statistical analysis. Period is no longer in question, but there are still specific strategies and specific ideas that are going to be debated, and where there are going to be different perspectives depending on your background. There's always a question of how you translate between words and numbers, and and then back again. And I think that gets a little bit of what Kevin is talking about. About. Um, whether we translate what people are seeing with their eyes into the right numerical question. And then if you answer that question in numbers, how well you bring it back into a into the words, the language of basketball. Um, I mean, even simple things. What we talk about is a, a contested shot. Like what is a contested shot? Is not very well defined in a lot of basketball language. And then there is all the numerical ways that you can use to define what a contested shot is. And it's those kind of translation questions will always be out there. And I think 
as long as you have to go back and forth between math and something real and practical and human, you're going to have some, some barriers to overcome. Yeah, uh, that's an interesting juxtaposition, the way you break that down. I, I don't know that I've heard it exactly that way, but it certainly makes sense. The challenge of going back and forth between math and something human and then taking it even one step further into the language of basketball, like that is very difficult. Um, and I, I guess human beings just are not great at being very exact in the description of anything, let alone the game of basketball, uh, especially where there can be multiple definitions, like what you said, what is a contested shot? What is a hedge? Uh, it's, a, it's a real challenge to interpret with a very exact definition using data. I guess that's one of the challenges that we face as we interpret data. So if you were to take stats from 15 years ago, I think it's if you, you go back, and that's probably the, the beginning of a real breakout um, in analytics in our game. A lot of the leaders in the NBA, either individuals or as a team, um, would be last today in today's NBA, right? The people that take the most three-pointers and the biggest impact was probably the number of three-pointers um, that, that are taken in a game versus 15 years ago. Um, is there room for something as impactful or have we taken the low-hanging fruit out of the game and are we really going to be you know trying to make improvements at the edges only my sense is probably not at that level of impact and it's probably similar to the trajectory that baseball has traversed where you know the, it's not no longer as simple as well on base val percentage is undervalued just you know go sign players with high obps for close to the minimum and you can put together a team that wins 100 plus games with you know the strong pitching that you've developed in house uh, which is a separate money ball question but you know now all of a sudden it's this entirely different you know set of things that are undervalued or that we understand better than we did whereas you know 15 years ago in baseball the idea of pitch framing being a valuable skill was uh, kind of uh, anathema. And then we've gone in 15 years from recognizing that was a skill and then kind of picking that clean so that now it's actually harder to, you know, be something that you can compete with. And I think there's probably similar evolutions like that to come in basketball, but probably not something as dramatic and as obvious to the fans as the, you know, the increase in threes and the way that, uh, you know, those shots were being undervalued for a period of time. Yeah, I would agree with Kevin on a lot of that. I think, um, yeah, the big gains, it's not that they, they would get wiped out. I think it's very possible we find other big gains. But what happens is it's we have so many people with access to data and trust in data that they will be able to figure out what you're doing as soon, even when it's a small game. And they'll be able to figure it out, adapt to it uh, much more quickly as well. Let me ask you, you know, data, there are a lot of different forms of data, right? There's the in-season data. There's the data from the box score of what happened in a game. There's historical data that can go back the 15 years of LeBron James's career. Um, or we could be looking at 
what used to be three games and four nights and, you know, how a team performed. And so there are a lot of different ways to carve up data. It's kind of thrown into the same bucket. Um, do you guys approach data any differently at different times of the season, right? And so, Kevin, I'd imagine you're looking at a lot of historical data as you're making your projections for the year ahead. But once the season starts and things start moving around and guys are on new teams and, you know, are you looking at something different or is it still a consistent database? Yeah, it's an interesting way to think about it. I mean, to me, it's kind of different indicators because when you have those smaller sample sizes, like right now, as we look, you know, two weeks into the season, you're looking at what are the things that tend to be more stable versus what are the things that are really noisy at this part of the season. So, you know, the kind of shots that a team is getting and allowing at the other end is going to be a lot more stable at this point of the season than the shot making on those attempts, particularly if it's something that's out of line with the rest of a player or a team's career. So, you know, that maybe becomes less of a focus as we get deeper into the season than it is for me right at the start. And maybe that same kind of thing, as you said, you know, if there's a trade that gets made, you're going to see that change and in, in the, the magnitude of that change, what, what it actually means quicker in terms of those, you know, process-based uh, stats as opposed to kind of the more results-based stats. Yeah. Indeed, I'd, I'd imagine, I mean, from a coaching perspective, you have so many games, it's turning around night by night, you have injuries, you, how, how do you uh, decipher and decide on what data you're looking at? Oh, I wish there was a simple rule of thumb for that one. <laughs> it's not. It is, it's tricky. I mean, just looking at Brooklyn Nets, for instance, um, who are the Brooklyn Nets? Uh, first of all, they're changing a coach. Um, they have a couple great players. They have Ben Simmons, who hasn't played in a year, trying to figure out even the sum of the parts, which is not equal to the whole on that team, is tricky. And I'm just pulling them up because they're right in the news. But a lot of teams early in the year, you don't have a real good feel for who they are, whether because it's a new year and their young players have gotten a little bit better uh, or they've changed Coaching staff, um, definitely some of the stuff Kevin's talking about in terms of style, you can see clear style differences. And how is that going to affect some of the players? Uh, the players are still trying to get a feel for that. And we're watching it. And our job in many ways is to make projections about what is the best way to deal with them. And uh, I try to use a lot of historical data to try to stabilize that. But there are times where okay, fundamentally they're, they're playing differently and maybe that makes a player better, maybe it makes a player worse. And I have to make judgments on those calls and, um, and then pass them on to the coaching staff. And my word is certainly not the final word on that. So I, I'm just trying to be a, an appropriate influencer. So when you were trying to assert your influence, um, are you adding a probability to the strength of your projection or interpretation because of lack of data or, or because of confidence in data? I'm not saying that. <laughs> <laughs> no, I just like the way most people convey their arguments, you try to say things you're more confident of uh, with more force, with more emphasis, um, and things you're less confident of, you may not say, uh, depending on 
on what the discussion is um, and how important it is. You may say it if it is potentially very important, then, then there's things that are less important and you're less confident about. So you probably really don't say those things uh, because there's only so much time. I mean, really 82 right. games is, is a tight schedule and you want to make sure that when you say things, it's, it's heard. That, well, that's a great pivot uh, because I think that there is some of the world, the sports fan world, that thinks that um, analytics should be digested as if you're a robot or you know somebody in the matrix and you just drop that in and say, oh, you have a 51% probability of making this shot from here and so therefore you should take this. You know, But that's not reality, Dean. So can you talk to us about what the schedule is during an 82-game season, how hard it is to actually really figure out where to choose your spots of um, what's going to be impactful and what's not. I mean, I don't know that this is well understood from how much players are going through, how much coaches are going through, yourself included, and then doing the research and then getting digestible moments. This really is uh, one of the the things they don't teach you in school, for instance. They really don't. The, the ability to be a scientist and really make judgments using numbers is one thing in an academic setting. Turning it into a discussion, a productive discussion. And Bill James said it once, too. He said that, I don't want to be the end of the discussion. I don't want what I do to be the end of the discussion. I want to make sure that it is part of the discussion. And because there are relevant factors. I know we talk about the psychology of the players, the physiology of the players, that it's a, it's a back-to-back, that someone may have played 45 minutes last night. All of these factors, which can they can be quantified individually, but the total impact um, on everything is, is much more complicated. Uh, you have to, you really do have to acknowledge that there are different ways of thinking about the problem. And there are different audiences. There's different ways that each of your coaches, each of the people in management think about different situations. So you try to stick to what they can digest and and try to guide them in a direction um, that you think is relevant for winning games. But it's, uh, it's, it, it is six months of us hearing each other a lot. And you want to make sure that each time you are heard and each time you're contributing to a discussion that it is, it's not just empty words, that it is useful, but also fun. It is basketball. We've got to have fun. It can't be serious all the time. Yeah. That, that is, that is a true art. Kevin. So when you talk to front office execs, coaches, agents, whoever it is, uh, I'd imagine you're getting some information from them, but what are they trying to understand from you and, is there a seasonality to that as well? Are there different times, free agency, trade deadline, things like that, where people count on your insight more? Or ha- ha- talk to us about what, what your relationship is with people in the league. See, I feel like those conversations are often happening after the fact. So this is partially probably a function of the NBA calendar. Like, you know, the two times that I see the most people in the league in person, inevitably, are the Sloan Conference in March which you know is usually right after the trade deadline now has become probably about three or four weeks after the trade deadline. So it's kind of an opportunity to download on that and everything that happens then. 
And then you've got the summer league in July in Las Vegas, which is everyone's talking about the draft that has just taken place and, you know, where rookies are, are showing up on the court and then the start of free agency, which, you know, thankfully now is, is largely wrapped up by the time that we actually get to, to Vegas and start playing those games. So, you know, those are kind of the, the talking points. And, you know, a lot of it is just kind of swapping info about, you know, people, the people that I've known in the league a long time, like, well, what did you think of, you know, this prospect? Oh, I had him here. Oh, we, we, we thought alike on this person. And you sort of, you have no idea about that going into the draft. It's just kind of, you know, and you're sort of guessing like based on what teams do. Oh, how closely are they actually modeling these players to what I think uh, when it's public? This, this was always kind of funny with John Hollinger and I because we traded spots to some extent. When I was consulting for the Pacers, he was running his draft projections on ESPN. And it was always very interesting, even internally in the Pacers front office, to sort of compare, here's where we're aligned. Here's where, even though we're using the same inputs, clearly in terms of a player's college data or their international data, where we come up with totally different conclusions about what kind of prospect they are. And then he got hired by the Memphis Grizzlies, which created the opening for me at ESPN. And suddenly his stuff was all you know, behind uh, the the team wall. And I was just co- sort of guessing from who they ended up drafting and signing, whereas he would comment then on what my projections were that were out in public. That's funny. I didn't know that uh, you, you and John kind of uh, had a weaving relationship like this. John's a, John's a great guy. Um, so with the ways to capture data today, and, and Dean, the challenges that you have of where do you insert these nuggets and morsels and Kevin with what you're researching, is there too much data? Is Second Spectrum and Synergy and Connexon providing too much? Is there, um, do you want more? What are you looking for? Uh, it's not too much data. I, I think management of how you use the data is critical and it's not a just a basketball problem it's a baseball problem it's a football problem it's it's uh, understanding what is the most important uh, pieces of data that can affect your team that can affect the opposing team if you're playing them there is a there is definitely uh, an art a science to figuring out what those things are pretty quickly and then then there's the art of how you communicate it but it is not too much data. It, it just forces you to be a lot more strategic in terms of how you use it. Yeah, and I think it's it's changed the way that the this process is being done within teams, certainly, where, you know, it used to be just you bring in Dean as an analyst or, or me as a consultant, and, you know, we could handle a lot of what it was teams were looking for and a lot of what the data was providing at that point. And now it's, you know, teams of multiple people, certainly, and a lot more focus on data, database management is part of that and you know dedicated programmers and then maybe you have an analyst on top of that who you know speaks the basketball language well enough to kind of translate and go back and forth between those people and the coaching staff and and the front office and do things like that so it's changed it from that standpoint but look always we want more data if i had uh, you know synergy tracking back from before 2405 or you know whatever whatever the first date was like i'd love to have that if we had it back to the 90s bring it on so i I guess you know one of the outcomes, hopeful outcomes from a lot of data is being able to um, model and rely on predictive analytics. Where, where are we on that continuum? How predictive and reliable are we as we look forward? 
Um, the betting market, I'm sure, would be extremely interested to learn more about this as that becomes more ubiquitous. But um, what are your thoughts on that? Let's start with you, Kev. Yeah, I feel like we haven't made as much progress as you would think. And in fact, things have get, probably gotten more difficult. And I think that's in some ways structural about, number one, we've just gone through a period where we've had you know, three consecutive seasons where either they haven't been full 82 game seasons or they there hasn't been a typical off season. And the last two years in particular, we've seen all these periods where teams have been hit hard by COVID and players in health and safety protocols. And that's kind of dramatically changed things. So this was something I observed when I posted my, you know, team projections coming into the season is uh, if you look at it is measured by Vegas over under totals, how close they are to teams actual records they're getting less predictive in recent years as opposed oh, to more predictive, that's even really with more data. And I, the other element of it is, is like this challenge of, you know, is the regular season, if, if teams don't necessarily focus on, we need to win as many games as we can in the regular season because we're aware of the value of rest and the importance of getting our players fresh to the postseason. That's another layer of challenge. So I, I think in some way, a lot of ways it's getting harder rather than easier and that's reflected in some of the projections we've seen last year in the, in the recent years, like the Golden State Warriors still being as heavy underdogs as they were to the Boston Celtics going into the finals after, you know, a season where, you know, where if you look at the betting markets, they were the favorites going into that series. So that's a, kind of a fascinating example. It's only one series. The fact that the, the Warriors did win in six doesn't necessarily prove that those projections were wrong, but it does kind of illustrate, I think, the growing difficulty of the challenge in many ways. I think some predictions have gotten easier, though. Uh, I think when you are talking about predicting a season, there it gets a little bit complicated. Playing time, rookies, three-point shooting. The fact that three-point shooting is so much more broadly used now than it was 20 years ago, 15 years ago. And three-point shots are less predictable than two-point shots. And, and fundamentally, that makes things like that a little bit harder. But on the other hand, predicting draft picks, I think that has gotten better. Certainly, the interjection of data into that has made that better. There is definitely still challenges, and what what can happen too is sometimes you end up finding what look like analytical diamonds in the rough, um, and they're they're just very false positives. But um, I think you can avoid those. Uh, those kind of predictions are are better. I think uh, they're the the danger with data. And I think what explains a little bit of what Kevin is talking about is that people do see too much data and they they don't know how to incorporate it at all. And so that leads to some bad predictions. Uh, ultimately, more data should lead to better predictions, but you have to know how to use it. Right. right. It's the ingredients and the chef, Dean. So I think the first year of SportView cameras, I, I, uh, when they became ubiquitous in the NBA that were replaced by Second Spectrum, but that first year, year of SportView, maybe 10 years ago, roughly, they said there was more data captured in that one year than in the 70 some odd years of previous NBA data. Um, we should be over the next couple of years coming to a similar moment where between um, wearables and computer vision we th there should just be an incredible flood um an exponential flood of new data um does that excite you does that 
uh, overwhelm you? Does that say to you, there is an opportunity here that we can take advantage of? Um, what, Dean, what, what are your thoughts with 10 times more data than we currently get? I, I'm very excited. I'm looking forward to it. I'm looking forward to seeing what all of this data can bring. I, in many ways, my job is to think about what to do with all this upcoming data before it ever comes in. And you won't, you won't be completely right. Uh, you won't think about enough of the things that you end up thinking about when it finally comes in. But doing that gives you some idea for how to deal with it when it does come in. I, I think it will be a tremendous boon. It, it's, it's funny to me, though, during all this process over the last 20 years, everybody, the first thing people want to go to is, oh, we need more data. We need more data. We need more data. And then when they get more data, like, oh, what are we going to do with all of this? It, it's <laughs> It's funny, and like I, I think you're right. Roughly ten years ago or so, when the player tracking came in, and it was more information than we had over the last seventy years or so of basketball. It was a huge amount of information. And do I think we've maximized what we can do with that data? No. And we're going to be getting a whole bunch of new stuff, and we're still playing catch up on what was introduced ten years ago. You were drinking from fire hose at first because of that that sort of dramatic change that that Milton yeah. mentioned. But uh, I, so I think there's maybe a little bit of a distinction on the team and the media slash public facing side on this. Like the the wearable data, I don't know that I imagine that we'll ever have access to, or even that necessarily would be a good thing if we had access to it in some ways. From the players' standpoints, I can understand their reticence there, even though I I think sometimes you know at least having something like that tracked by data as opposed to just being the assumptions of a handful of people looking at it is, is a, a better thing for everybody from a transparency standpoint. But, you know, I, if we got more robust tracking data on, you know, non NBA levels of play that, that to me is hugely exciting and seems valuable because, you know, one of the things that we have learned from the tracking data in the NBA and, and, you know, other uh, looking at it from the adjusted plus minus standpoint is, you know, there are these elements of the box score that even though they're stable and reliable for players, they don't necessarily have the impact at the team level on a consistent basis that we assume. So like rebounding is something that, you know, people put a lot of value on early on when Dean talks about the draft models getting better. Uh, you know, Daryl Morey talked about this in the undoing project, Michael Lewis's book, a lot of his early, you know, players who popped were guys who were, huge permanent rebounders and those guys i think brandon hunter was the uh, the celtics draft pick that maury had a chance to make back before he was in houston even uh you know those guys turned out to be useful nba players but not necessarily the superstars that they looked at like in a lot of cases and so that's one where it turns out that you know boxing out sometimes is a really important skill relative to actually grabbing a rebound so someone like you know the collins twins or the lopez's I don't know why twins tend to be really good at this. That's that's an interesting question to ask. You know, someone who boxes out and allows their teammates to grab a rebound, that player may be more useful for team rebounding than the guy who has is individually grabbing a lot of rebounds. So being able to you know bring more data to that question at the uh, the draft projection level would be really interesting to me. So let's let's talk about analytics generally in sports. Um, what is the hardest sport? to bring analytics to and why? Is it as simple as the amount of variables, um, meaning players on the field, uh, how much is stop and go? 
have to do with it. We know baseball is great because it's one-on-one confrontations with a lot of stoppage in play. Um, tell me, give me a, a ranking, maybe easiest to hardest in the big five uh, major league sports. Big five. Okay. I, I only really know about baseball, basketball, and football. Uh, going beyond that is tough. I, I do think baseball is the easiest because it is predominantly a one-on-one matchup. There is not a lot of multi-on-multi uh, situations there. Basketball is probably next. And football, I did work in football. There is a lot of complexity to having not only the number of players on the field. And it's you have the offensive line versus defensive line, and then you've got a separate matchup between the receivers and defensive backs and sometimes linebackers. But there's also the, the game theory element, uh, things stopping and, and going so much in football. And what you did on with a certain look in the first quarter is meant to really just deceive them in the third or fourth quarter. And that kind of thing is it's relevant in other sports, but it's important in football. I think football really has, it's, it's difficult. It's a very different kind of analytics in my mind than basketball or baseball. Yeah. I don't know if I have a good sense football relative to hockey and soccer. I, I think hockey is probably close, slightly closer to basketball. If you're looking at the, at the hockey, soccer, basketball, continuous flow sports it seems like because there is more individual stats tracked in hockey than there is in soccer and just things are recorded in a play-by-play more frequently than they are Uh, but obviously tracking data helps a lot with all of those sports like that Uh, I my my thought with soccer was always like I should pay attention to who's doing soccer analytics because if they can figure it out then well we should be way ahead of them given how much more and more data we have access to uh, but the, there's also the teamwork element that Dean sort of didn't touch on. And I think it's such a big part of this that has always been a huge part of his work is, you know, how how interdependent are, is your success on your teammates? And then I think another level of, and, and this may be in football, most of all, like there's two layers, like how well does a player execute this game? And then, you know, is that actually better than a player who freelances and the coach might be unhappy they're outside the scheme, but they're actually making positive happen- things happen with that freelancing. So that, that's definitely a thing in, in pretty much any non-baseball sport, but uh, uh, particularly relevant in football and basketball. It's interesting, the teamwork element and how to analyze, you know, them collectively playing hard and being tough and all these things that coaches kind of try to pound into their identity um you know we look at someone like Kyrie scored four points last night and you know there's a lot going on at the nets um there's obviously no way to predict that but as we analyze that is that just increased volatility like you know in option pricing the biggest variable the most important variable is volatility um to the underlying price and how do we think of all the variances that happen during the season, whether it's a you know flight getting delayed and you arrive at 5 a.m. to your hotel or back-to-back, a party going out, a nagging injury, or all these things, how do you incorporate that into what you're analyzing and how you strategize, Dean? Yeah, that's, that's kind of what I was hinting at a little bit before is 
this is where you end up having to use a little bit of gut feel because we don't have a model that puts all that stuff together. We're building models to get there. We're definitely <laughs> trying to incorporate all we know about rest um, and physiology and some psychology and all of these things into the stuff that we're doing. But until you have something that's tried and true, uh, you do have to rely on your your instinct. Like, oh, okay, this like we didn't get in until four, and we didn't get to sleep until six, uh, and now like we had to get rid of shoot around or, or even a, in a meeting because we got in so late. And sometimes your gut overestimates the importance of those. Sometimes it under or you, sometimes you just forget about those things. And I think that's one of the ideas is that at least data can bring it in, can bring those things into the process a little bit better and hopefully help your gut do it right. Dean, in our prep, you said there's no holy grail. I'm looking for that holy grail. And so I'd love to hear what you guys think is the closest to a holy grail as we analyze individual players. So there's PER, there's uh, Carmelo, there's the adjusted plus minus, Raptor, there's all these things, plenty of which I haven't even mentioned. Um, a lot of them you can find on Basketball Reference. But what's useful, uh, Kevin, let's start with you when you look at these advanced metrics. What, what do you find useful and do you tailor them to position or winningness of the team? Or the, how, how creative are you when you use some of these analytics? So yeah, this is probably something I think a lot about a lot more than Dean because you know that's it's more relevant to to my job to separate the very best players like you know from a, a, a team particularly on the coaching side it, it doesn't really matter who's better between you know who should be the MVP this season but as someone who's voting on that it, it becomes crucially important and you know to me the measure is kind of how well do those how those metrics predict out of a sample and what we have seen pretty consistently in the the robust studies that have looked at this is it's the ones that incorporate both some form of adjusted plus minus and box score stats and, and tracking stats potentially as well for stability because the, those metrics tend to be much more stable from season to season and over smaller samples than the adjusted plus minus data is going to be and then marry those two together tend to be the best so uh, that that actually i think is generally not the ones that's on that are on basketball reference but uh you know pi pipm is uh one that has been very useful in recent years epm uh, created by a guy who worked for the Utah Jazz, Taylor Starr, has been really, really strong in that. And, you know, I think one of the big things that I takeaways for me is each of those are going to have slightly different formulas and they're all going to have their own different quirks. So it's important to look at multiple ones and get a sense for, you know, where one of them might be off, but not to kind of look at multiple ones. This is what fans might sometimes want to do and, and pick whatever one kind of best matches my own uh, original inclinations because that way you're not really going to learn anything. A few years ago, uh, before I started working here, there was an off season where a number of the adjusted plus minus stars changed teams. I know Ricky Rubio was one of those. I can't remember some of the others. And there was a question. This is an opportunity to see what happens to these guys. And my recollection was that the a lot of a lot of the adjusted plus minus metrics didn't do very well on that test. In fact, um, other metrics did. 
did better. Uh, I think whether, no matter how you look at all of these things, my, my perspective is if you're trying to use these, you want them to be somewhat predictive. Kevin is talking about descriptive. How descriptive were they of what happened this past season? And I think that that is relevant for exactly what he's talking about, voting for the MVP, some of the storylines and so forth. But those kind of tests, I think, should be done a little bit more in the public uh, regarding, like, yeah, how well did these guys play? Did they make their teams better? My recollection is though many of those stars really didn't. Um, and afterwards, there were say, well, it actually wasn't fair because they're older and things like that. But uh, it was a small sample. It's worth doing more times. And that was an interesting point to something that Dean has talked about earlier. We just talked about Jay Crowder, I think, was one of those guys who changed teams right. when he went from Boston to Cleveland. And you know, I was very high on that trade for the Cavaliers in large part because of that. And I believe that was the summer that his mother passed away. He was off the court for an extended period of time really struggled in Cleveland. And then all of a sudden, load these many years later, like Jay Crowder is this perfect role player. All his teams tend to win no matter where he goes. He's was on back-to-back finals teams in Miami and Phoenix. And like the perspective is flipped on it several times. So that's, you know, one of the, there's so many variables. That's part of what makes it so challenging, but definitely you do find that the adjusted plus minus part of it in particular is more predictive uh, when players stay on the same team than when they change teams. All right, guys, I want to wrap up here. I got two questions for you. Um, and uh, Dean, we can start with you. Who's in the Hall of Fame besides the two of you guys? Uh, Daryl is an obvious one. Hollinger is an obvious one. Uh, does a guy like Mike D'Antoni get in there? Give me two more names in your analytics Hall of Fame for basketball. Uh, I think Dan Rosenbaum is not a bad name for uh, it for some of the APM stuff. I think it gets a little bit difficult. Wayne Winston and, and Jeff Sagarin are kind of those three kind of all pioneered some of the APM stuff I think is relevant. Uh, sometimes I think we forget about Roland Beach, um, who really had an important public site looking at some of the play-by-play data. Uh, those are the, some of the first names that come to my mind. Yeah, I was going to say Roland and Justin Kubatko. Uh, you know, Justin Kubatko, pioneeringbasketballreference.com. And look, hey, you know, that that has done more to put statistics in the public eye than I think anything, because if you go to, you know, a profile for, you know, LeBron James player page, you've got advanced metrics right there alongside his traditional stats. And that's a huge part of it in just getting people familiar and and turning the giving those numbers the power of language. Kevin, you Excellent mentioned um, APBR, and I'm, I'm certainly old enough to remember that um, the Yahoo chat rooms where some of you guys got discovered. Some people got jobs and certainly uh, people in the media. Where are these conversations taking place now? How do you find out um, what the novel ideas are? Are they all out in the open? Yeah, I mean, I think some of them are happening on Twitter that that has, uh, even though the APRBR metrics forum still exists, it's not as uh, active as it used to be and not as many people who are working for teams. So, And part of it is so many of these people are working for these teams. So those conversations are hard, more difficult to have in public, but a lot of them have migrated over to Twitter. So, uh, you know, we'll, we'll see how long that continues, but uh, <laughs> some of them are there for now. Guys, this has been fantastic. It's always great to see you. Look forward to seeing you at Summer League, if not sooner. Thanks Thanks a lot. For sure. Thanks, Mel. 
good to see you both.